0: Well, it is um, good to be back with you after being gone for a couple weeks. We had some traveling, and then and then uh, I got sick, and uh, so it feels like I've been gone for a really long time. But um, but I am happy to be back with you. We are uh, we're back in Luke, and I wanted to say a quick word about uh, a few things before we get into our sermon, real quick. Some of you don't know that, um, but but statistics say that people tend to choose a church based on, there's a lot of factors, there's like six or seven factors, but the the primary factor is preaching. And so that's a good thing. People still to this day tend to choose a church based, top of the list is preaching, and below that is music. Whether that's right or wrong, it, it, it falls down like that. And then there are other things like friendliness and programs and different things like that. But people to this day still tend to self-select into a congregation based on their, them being able to resonate with the preaching and the music. And so as we, as, as we think about that, it's helpful for you to know that we as a church think very deeply about those two things. And so churches tend to fall into two categories regarding preaching and how they treat the Bible, there's kind of like the life principles approach to the Bible, which is the Bible is essentially a book of principles, and we're going to mind the Bible for good advice about living. The other approach, now that's true, the Bible does have a lot of really good advice and a lot of principles about living and being alive in the world. The other approach is kind of like the biblical exposition approach. And that approach to preaching essentially has a view of the Word of God, that the Word of God is much more than life principles and good advice. It is actually the story of the world and the story of essentially God's dealing with humanity. It's really the story of history. And as we kind of subject ourselves to that preaching approach, we find ourselves in that story and recognize in the twists and turns of redemption and, and God's covenants with his people um, a kind of a bigger truth than just life principles. We get that too, but we, we, we get the scope of history. And, and and that that approach is our approach here at this church, and it tends to really ask and answer some really big existential questions about not just life, but but spirituality and our connection to God. And the same thing goes for our music. Um, the melody of our music is secondary. You'll notice when, when you're reading the lyrics off the screen that we think very deeply about having the music we sing have very, uh, r- reflect very rich theological truths in the lyrics. And so those are values that we have here in this church and other churches may May value different things, but, but what a church values in that regard really affects its trajectory. And so that's the church that's the church we are. Um, we, we really believe in biblical exposition, and so we approach the Bible that way. and if along the way we get some life principles and, and advice for living, that's good too. But primarily what we're doing is submitting and yielding ourselves, to God's word, because we believe it has authority, not just about our lives individually, but about all of human history, and also the songs we sing, too. So that's just a quick word about who we are as a church and what we, what we value. So let's get into our sermon this morning, Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19, and we're talking about the parable of the wicked tenants, and that's an exciting title, that uh, you probably invited all of your friends and family to come here. Um, Come to church this Sunday. We're talking about the parable of the wicked tenants. Uh, But uh, let's start in verse 9. Hear the word of God. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he sent yet a third, this one also they wounded and cast out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for this, your holy word, which sanctifies us. You declared as much that we are sanctified by the truth. Your word is truth. And so we submit ourselves under the authority of Holy Scripture because we believe you have truly spoken to us through your word. Transform us and convict our hearts by it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, two main biblical images emerge when we read this passage. Scripture. There's stewardship and cultivation. So if we were to just kind of like yank a couple of themes out of this passage of Scripture, there's the idea of stewardship and cultivation. And the imagery uh, of being agricultural stewards goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Genesis 2 says that the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were placed in Eden as gardeners, you could say, tending to God's good creation. And the idea, of course, is that though the world was made perfect, it was incomplete, requiring lots of hard work and care and cultivation to become what it one day would and could be. Now, some of you you say, what? God made all things, but it wasn't complete? That's true. He made the world perfect, he made it good, but it was not complete. It had within its DNA the possibility of being cultivated, so to speak. And so the imagery of the garden is a good metaphor, not that it's not true, of course it's true, but it also serves beyond its literal truth to a metaphor that through the hard work of faithful stewardship, the world would be cultivated, and become what God desired it one day to become. The earth is the Lord's, but he's entrusted it to human beings. Isaiah 5 gives this imagery of a vineyard. So a garden is one image, a vineyard is another. Isaiah 5, Israel is seen as God's vineyard. It says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant planting." He, took, he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a shriek of terror. And so, Israel, as God's vineyard, was to bear much fruit. They were, some of you know this, you've heard this before. Israel was supposed to be the light to the nations. And as the nations looked at Israel, Israel was supposed to bear fruit. And the way they were supposed to bear fruit was their laws and their religious life was supposed to be appealing to the nations, the pagan nations around them, that when they saw Israel, they said, what other nation is like this, whose God dwells in their midst, whose laws are holy, and, and bless them and help them and, and cause them to have joy and happiness? In other words, the law was supposed to put a pep in Israel's step, so to speak. Their religious life was to you know, kind of give them like a, a, a vivaciousness about life that other people were to see. And this imagery of Israel as a vineyard and their, their, their life and, and deeds and their faithfulness to God bearing fruit pointed back to the fellowship that man had with God in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve tended to the garden and cultivated it. And it's this thread that runs all throughout Scripture. In fact, it, it picks up again and again and again, but by the time you get to Revelation 22, listen, it says that John writes this of the New Jerusalem, okay? Down the middle of the great street of the city and on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So this is not just kind of a one off. Metaphor or imagery. It's all throughout Scripture. Israel was God's vineyard and they were meant to bear much fruit. Now, as Jesus' ministry reaches its climax and the Jewish leadership seeks to kill him, as we've traveled through Luke, there are moments where the scribes and the priests, they just, Jesus is driving them nuts because his words are so powerful and often they fall on the reproving end of his instruction. They want to kill him, and now that he's in the city of Jerusalem and the Passion Week has begun, it's the last week of his life that's ramping up to a fever pitch, and Jesus knows that they're going to catch up with him. He knows that they're going ultimately to kill him, and so Jesus tells this prophetic parable about Israel's history, which was about to culminate in his death, and so if I can run back through the parable and hopefully shine the light on some things maybe we weren't able to pick up. Well, as was true of all the Lord's parable, this one used imagery from everyday life, which his hearers would have been familiar with. Vineyards were common in Israel, especially on hillside terraces. And in this parable, a man plants a vineyard, and he makes every effort to uh, provide all that was necessary to yield a good crop. And as often was done in those days, he rented out his vineyard to vine growers. They were tenant farmers who rented the land uh, from him and paid him a percentage of the harvest. And having leased his vineyard to continue its usefulness and provide income for himself, the owner went on a journey for a long time. And the absentee landowner was a common case in ancient Israel and other places in the Middle East. And um, while he was away, Harvest time came, and to collect a percentage, he sent servants to the vine growers who were renting out his vineyard so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. And this was also a feature of the parable that people in Jesus' day would have been familiar with. Now, in uh, England for centuries, wealthy landowners allowed certain families to live on their vast estates and they would take care of either crops or livestock, and they would pay back a portion of those crops and livestock, large portions, to the owner of the estate. This is really the idea, the modern idea of where rent comes from. You're living on someone else's estate and you're paying back a portion of what that estate produces back to the owner. And if the steward failed to faithfully manage the land for their master, he replaced them. And this was a common occurrence, and history records this happening. Now, on the other hand, uh, if a steward was faithful, his family could live on um, a nobleman's estate for generations. And, And some of the history of England and Europe also has this history, where certain families... Stewarded either crops or livestock for a, a, a nobleman or um, uh, someone of noble lineage or uh, a landowner for generations. In fact, it became something that was that, that actually became a source of, of kind of like um, semi nobility itself. If you were a faithful steward of someone's grand estate, you could rise in rank in culture and it became so prevalent that people wanted to identify this way, and they started naming themselves Stuart. In fact, the last name Stuart comes from this concept. So if you meet somebody with the last name Stuart, they are descended from people who stewarded land for other people back uh, many centuries ago. Um, And in Jesus' parable, the owner of the vineyard, getting back to the parable now, the owner of the vineyard patiently gives the vine growers Multiple opportunities to do what was right by sending one servant after another. But the defiant vine growers beat and treat each one shamefully, sending them away empty-handed. If you're listening to this, you're thinking, This is unheard of, this is shocking. Right? It'd be like uh, if you're renting a place and the landowner, you know, your landlord comes to collect the rent and you punch him in the face. You know, or, or they, send, they send maybe someone to come collect the rent. And this would have been shocking to Jesus' hearers. Now, when Matthew and Mark tell this parable, they have it to where the servants are not only being beaten, but some of them are even being killed by the vine growers renting out the vineyard. And the answer um, to the question of the owner of the vineyard is, what shall I do? Jesus says that in this parable that this vineyard owner owner says, you know, what am I going to do? Every time I send servants, they they beat the servants. And the obvious answer to Jesus' hearers would have been, oh, we know what you need to do. And so Jesus continues the parable, and in their minds, swift and immediate vengeance is the answer. Now, today we have laws where you, you know, call the marshal and you file a an and order, court order, and you get the person kicked off the property. But in those days, if you had somebody who was rebellious and did not want to yield the fruit or or cooperate with the landowner, uh, you hired yourself a little army. You know, you hired men willing to do violence, and you pulled those people out by force, and maybe did other things also. And <clears throat> but instead, in the parable, instead of immediate, swift judgment the vineyard owner says, he's going to make one last appeal, and he says, I'll send my beloved son, perhaps they'll respect him. But instead, the vine growers see it as their opportunity to seize full control of the vineyard once and for all. And when the son arrives, they throw him out of the vineyard and kill him in an act of cold-blooded, premeditated murder. And Jesus says in verse 15, so what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, all along the parable, uh, they've been listening to Jesus and they're incensed at these vine growers. And they're tracking with Jesus' parable, thinking, oh, those wicked vine growers. But by the time Jesus gets to the end of the parable and announces the punishment, This is their response. They say, no, no. The Greek phrase is meganoita, which means God forbid. When they finally hear Jesus' punishment, they are beside themselves with horror. They have this immediate visceral response because they realize that Jesus is talking about them. They realize that Jesus has just condemned their leaders and their nation to destruction. They've rightly processed the parable. The vineyard owner is God. The vineyard is Israel. The vine growers are the leaders of Israel. The extended journey taken by the vineyard owner pictures the Old Testament history, which culminated when God returned in the person of his son, the servants are the Old Testament prophets whom Israel mistreated in the same manner that the vine growers mistreated the vineyard owners' servants. You may remember back in Luke chapter 11 when Jesus pronounced woe to the teachers, and he said, Woe to you, you teachers of Israel, because you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. Jesus is announcing. This judgment. And the real shocker is this, that the persecution of God's messengers took place often at the hands of God's own people. And now God's ultimate messenger, his very own son, is about to be put to death by the people he came to save. Now what's the application of all of this? This parable, besides the literal case of the nation of Israel beating the the prophets and rejecting their messages, their message, which was God's message, over and over and over throughout the centuries, and God's ultimate messenger being rejected and killed, and Jesus pronouncing that essentially this vineyard, their, their custodianship, if you will, over the covenants and the promises of God is going to be transferred to someone else. The application for us is it's a vivid picture of human rebellion against God. Because, see, the tenants reject the reality that they're creatures of God who simply live in God's vineyard. They want to be lords of the vineyard, and they're, but they're really unwilling to relinquish control over the vineyard to the rightful owner. And this actually sounds like us sometimes because we try to control our lives and figure out our future without God. We give very little consideration to him and his commandments and his ways and often give very little consideration to God in our lives and in our plans. Or sometimes our rebellion against God is more passive. We just simply ignore him. We can ignore God, but everything we have belongs to God, everything we are. Our lives, our possessions, our family, our careers, well, they all belong to God because God has given them to us. Our lives are not our own. We're stewarding all that we have for God, and God wants us to bear much fruit, he wants us to bear fruit. He wants us to glorify him. He wants us to remind ourselves that all that we have belongs to God. Our lives, you could say, are, are vineyards, and God is seeking from time to time to collect the rent. We often think that you know, because God saves us by grace and God you know, pursues us and God is the one who's initiated our salvation, not because of anything we've done, we often think that God doesn't, respect, doesn't expect anything in return. And that's just not the picture the Bible paints. You know, uh, we can overdo it on the grace. You, know, it's, it's like you never overdo it on grace. Well, kind of. Because, you know, sometimes there's this idea of cheap grace. That God loves me, loves me, loves me no matter what I do. And no matter what I do or what I don't do, God will always love me, love me, love me. And we want to say that God loves us, but does expect something in return from us. He wants us to bear fruit. And if you think about any human relationship, you know that this is true. You know that you know, doing things for people, you may not do things for people to get something in return, but there is a relational dynamic to any interaction with people we love or we, have or we know where... We we want to cultivate a relationship, especially between a husband and a wife, but parents and their children and friends and coworkers. And God also desires a relationship with us and longs for us to glorify him, longs for us to bear fruit. And ancient Israel had stopped bearing fruit. Our lives are meant to be built on Jesus Christ. Our lives are meant to bear fruit, He's the chief cornerstone. It's interesting that Jesus follows up this parable about a vineyard with a statement about rejecting him as the chief cornerstone. I say, what, do these two have, what do these two concepts have to do with each other? Well, the idea is if you live your life with absolute uh, neglect of the one who owns your life, it is essentially equivalent of rejecting Jesus. If you live your life in a way that completely ignores God, like a practical atheist, you may philosophically, in your mind, believe that God exists, but if in your actions you act as if God doesn't exist, well, it's the same as rejecting the lordship of Jesus Christ. And Jesus makes this statement. He said that the stone, verse 17, that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What is the idol that Jesus is acutely focusing in on here? It's the idol of autonomy. And autonomy, in this parable, is equivalent with rejecting the Son, rejecting the lordship of jesus christ and here's what autonomy is if i can just touch on it for a moment autonomy is this idea that we are our own people i'm my own man you're your own woman we make our own decisions and every decision we make is ultimately self-interested nobody tells me what to do where to go or how to do it and every decision i make is ultimately for my own benefit and the one thing i value and this is kind of our culture in america One thing we value above all else is our autonomy. And I think Jesus is identifying this as a wicked idol. This idea that we have autonomy over the vineyard, that we have autonomy over our lives, that we have autonomy over our work and careers and finances and family, and that we don't answer to nobody. I don't know if that's correct English. We don't answer to anyone. That was a double negative. We don't answer to anyone. Right? That's, that's, that's the idol of autonomy, and Jesus is focusing in on it. The vine grower's autonomous claim over the vineyard doesn't yield fruit, but it yields acts of rebellion, and acts of rebellion and violence ultimately yield judgment. When we ignore the lordship of Jesus over our lives, it has crushing consequences, he says, the stone, whoever falls on this stone will be, cru- will be ground to powder, and whoever this stone falls on will be crushed. In other words, you can get away for a while with neglecting the lordship of Jesus Christ, but after a while, it has crushing consequences. And even us as, our, as God's children, when we live in a way that ignores the reality of God, it, it has consequences, It does not yield good things. It yields bad things. As I said a moment ago, God has every intention of collecting the rent. The rent of fruit and good works. The peaceable fruit of righteousness. He wants to to yield that crop from us. God wants us to bear fruit. And what does that look like? Well, I'm going to close on this note from Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, things that the vine growers obviously didn't possess. And Paul says to the Galatians, against such things there is no law. And then he adds one more statement to this. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When the fruit of the Spirit is, when you're bearing fruit, when the fruit of the Spirit is is yielding from your life, you're crucifying the flesh along with it. In other words, you cannot keep giving yourself to lustful, sinful passions and pleasures, including the idol of autonomy, and at the same time yield these beautiful fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. These things cannot go together. And so to bear fruit, to give the owner of the vineyard the crop he wants, you have to be crucifying the flesh, crucifying the flesh and all of its passions and desires, not just the deeds of the flesh, but the disordered desires of the heart. You have to crucify those things. And Christ enables us to do that by his grace and by the Holy Spirit. This is not an impossible task. It's good for us every now and again to have some self-reflection, to look at ourselves and examine our lives, not as as a means to earn salvation, but to be able to at least compare notes. I say I'm a Christian. Am I living as one? I say I'm a Christian. what, What are the desires of my heart? It's good for us to do that. And it's good for us to recognize that our lives are not our own, but they've been bought with a price. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for this word. Lord, this this word was directed at the leaders of Israel and their faithless stewardship of the vineyard. Lord, we know that by grace you have named us and claimed us as your own. And it is by grace that we stand in your love and acceptance. We declare that. But Lord, we pray that you would help us in a modern and industrial and scientific age which, which often relegates God to simply uh, the private spirituality of the heart. It can be easy for us to neglect you in our daily lives, making Our walk with you, irrelevant to anything other than what we think about eternity. Lord, you long for us to live in a way that bears fruit, and not just for your own glory, but that so the nations might see. That the nations might see it and be glad that that there might be a light to the nations from the people of God, shining like a city set on a hill that no man can hide Help us, oh God, to be that light, to be that city on a hill. In Christ's name we pray, amen.